millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. In 2013, a slightly odd situation unfolded after the NME gave Tom Adele's latest album a 0 out of 10 review. Uh, not that uncommon, you might think, but then what happened next was perhaps a little rarer. Uh, Tom Adele's dad rang the newspaper to complain about the savage beating uh, that his son's album had been given, uh, and then later when The Independent uh, wrote a piece about the whole uh, affair, Tom Adele's publicist uh, threatened to pull an interview that was going to run in Saturday's edition of the same paper. So uh, it seems that reviews do still have the capacity to uh, to cut deep. Um, the review in question was written by this week's guest. Uh, his name is... Mark Beaumont. In case you didn't catch that, it was uh, Mark Beaumont. Today, uh, this week's episode is a particularly good one for fans of clicks, hisses, background noise and poor internet connections. For everybody else, I do apologise. The sound quality is not up to scratch this week, but I wanted to run this anyway because uh, Mark and I really got into it, talked about a lot of interesting uh, topics concerning reviews, particularly music reviewing and working at the enemy. Uh, and so I'd like uh, for everybody to get as much out of it as they can. Um, here's Mark in his own words talking a little bit about his career in music. Okay, well, I guess um, I'm kind of best known for enemy. I've been writing for enemy pretty much solidly for about 23 years um, with some uh, a, a short period of time I was uh, working for the Melody Maker. I also do stuff for um, The Guardian, The Telegraph, Classic Rock. Uh, I'm working at Uncut at the moment. Uh, books, uh, various books about news and, and Jay-Z that people may have read. Uh, in Fly Magazines, I'm kind of everywhere. You can't really miss me. You can't get through your entire life without coming across me somehow, I'm sure. There we go. Apologies in advance once again for the slightly substandard uh, audio quality of this week's episode. Uh, please don't give it a 0 out of 10 review, otherwise I'll have to get my dad to call you up and complain. Uh, let's hear from Mark. It's been quite fun in that uh, I actually had, I was sport for choice really in terms of uh, stories relating to your writing that I that I could include. And in the end, I plumped for the uh, the Tom O'Dell review story, which I'm sure you're more than familiar with. Um, I wondered, did you feel any differently about about giving Tom O'Dell a zero out of ten once his dad came into the frame and and started complaining about it? Does it matter? Uh, no, not at all. Um, I mean, first of all. You know, we heard that Tom O'Dell's dad had called the office. I mean, no one was there to answer to answer him. 
I think he spoke briefly to the, the editor's secretary. No one was there to actually take his call. We were all in, all in a meeting. So as far as we know, he could have been calling up to congratulate us and thank us for sort of guiding his son toward, towards something a bit less embarrassing. But um, it didn't really change my opinion of, of the record or, or of him. I mean, it's, the, the weird thing about that, um, that review was that, you know, 0 out of 10 is very much a sort of grand tradition at the enemy. And, you know, I've given many in my time. And, uh, you can look back through the archive and find people giving records sort of minus 100. And, you know, this, the, the vitriolic sort of takedown is a bit of a, an enemy tradition. So I was kind of surprised that it got the reaction it did. And it kind of, you know, made me realize that people just aren't really used to sort of extreme criticism or, or much criticism at all, really. It made me think uh, a little bit of the, of the Razzies as well, you know, the kind of the sort of negative Oscars they give out. And that there are a lot of people that that are very insulted by the fact they get nominated for worst film or whatever. And then there are a handful of people who kind of take it in good faith and in the, in the spirit it's intended. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how uh, Tom O'Dell himself took it. I'm sure he sort of uh, called his dad and said, don't be going back and dad. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. It's, 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 it was a kind of odd thing that it was, um, uh, it was, it, it was national news, you know, various newspapers picked it up and, and, you know, me giving a bad record, a bad review, suddenly became, um, you know, a, a big talking point, and, and people were sort of trying to argue that, that nothing should get naught out of ten, and that just the, the ability to play an instrument is worth something, and the ability to write some sort of song is, is worthy of mark. I mean, I have the, I'm of the opinion that um, if we've got a range of naught to ten, you know, marks to use, then you should be able to use all of them. Um, but yeah, it was it was kind of it was an odd situation, and one of those things that, as I say, made made you realise that people just aren't used to criticism and don't really want criticism um, in in the world, if you like. I mean, I think maybe social media is is uh, is there's a sort of a, maybe a mission on there in order to try and stamp out any sort of negativity, and, and you know, um, so much negativity online is with, to do with bullying and to do with you know putting people down, but you know that can affect criticism of works of art as well people just aren't used to negativity and so when they see it they they do go and try and attack it yeah and i wonder if if, if sort of the negative review I, this has come up on a few episodes i wonder if ne negative reviews are perhaps a bit in decline as kind of the, the real estate for, for the space that reviews take up is perhaps dwindling and so you end up with you know and obviously you know there's there's a lot of stories about people not being paid as well for writing and so on do you think perhaps that ends up it with a situation where people are writing passionately about things they love and, and just ignoring the things that actually deserve a bit of constructive criticism there's um i mean there's an awful lot of uh reasons behind why that happens i mean one of the uh, you've got to look at this as the broad spectrum of where people are writing about music. I mean, as publications have kind of had to try and work out how to deal with the internet, and the internet, as it became uh, more important, meant that you know publications might give bad reviews to something, and they'd get an awful lot like worse backlash than they would have done 20 years ago when people, you know, they might get one or two letters sent into the letters page. And at the same time, the, the internet people people stopped wanting to pay for music publications, so there seemed to be a correlation between the more bad reviews you get, the more backlash you get, the less people buying the, the, the magazine or whatever. So I think maybe kind of publications sort of saw that and just thought, well, that's actually a bit scary, and let's try not to give, uh, put so much more, so much criticism out there. At the same time, you had all these blogs coming up, which were basically just kind of uh, recommending things. Really, they weren't necessarily there to criticise. Um, so those things combined in order to kind of 
you know, to, 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 to what I meant that there was just far less criticism as a whole in, in, in music journalism. Mm. Um, you've obviously interviewed as well as reviewed countless artists over the years. How frequently does interviewing artists make you think less or more of their work? Do you often go in expecting a genius and discover an idiot or vice versa? <laughs> um, I don't think I've ever been put off anybody's work by interviewing them, as far as I can remember. Um, I guess no one, yeah, no one's really come across as particularly stupid. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I don't really know. I've, um, I tend to find that I've, I've probably interviewed sort of most of the people that I, I admire. And this is another thing that, that happens is that uh, you're generally sent to um, interview bands that you like. You know, it's not like back in the 60s and 70s and 80s where you'd, uh, the enemy would specifically send people off along to um, interview people that they've slagged off. Um, and they've all generally lived up to my expectations, to be honest with you. I mean, I guess because you, if, you, if you know enough about an act, then you kind of... You, when you go into when you, when you go into interview someone, you've generally read an awful lot about the interviews they've done before, so you kind of know what to expect. Um, you know, you, I've had a few where you know, uh, I don't know, the guy from um, Crystal Castles fell asleep during an interview. You know, that was very disappointing. Um, but yeah, so, you know, some people that were maybe a bit more reticent than uh, than otherwise. But you know, other people that you go in and you kind of expect them to be. Um, difficult, difficult interviewees, and they don't disappoint you. I mean, you know, Marky Smith tried to bite my throat out when I interviewed him. You know, I did the last print interview with Lou Reed, and he, uh, you know, he shouted me out of the room at the end, at the end of it. What you'd expect? I mean, if you're going to interview Lou Reed, you want to get shouted out of the room. I mean, that's, that's, that's part, part of the yeah, absolutely, part and parcel of. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One, one thing uh, that, that, that I was kind of curious about um, in terms of you editing the letters page at NME is that I, I believe your time there roughly coincided with the, with the rise of the internet. I wondered, did that make a difference to... 
to the way that people would, would write in or the way that people would complain? Did people start, were people kind of sicked on you by artists once artists had social media? Or did people writing in seem less passionate once they could do it by email or tweet? Like, did it affect the quality? It did affect the quality, yeah. Um, up, up until sort of the turn of the century, I guess, we'd, we'd have people would sort of sit down and write sort of long and, and elaborate sort of letters into the enemy. And that was kind of the point of it, was that you were trying to sort of, uh, you know, get a, a fairly verbose and, and articulate um, dis uh, discussion going or an argument across. You know, there's no point, that, or there seemed to be no point back then to write a letter into the enemy that was just a sort of flip and throw away thing. There was a couple of people that would do like one one line letters and send them in, send about 20 a week just to sort of get their name in the in the enemy, but generally you'd find people who wanted to be fairly articulate um, and took the, the process quite seriously, even though they knew they were going to get um, called an idiot by whoever was editing the, the page that week, which was all part of the sport of it. Mm. Um, then you can sort of, yeah, as, as people started emailing things in and we, and we put the email uh, address in for people to send that, send in emails to that, I mean, yeah, I mean, people put an awful lot less effort into it. Um, and as things started going on, appearing on the internet and people didn't even have to pick up and buy the magazine in order to read something and just react straight away. I mean, it, it, it all, often often it became, um, you'd look at the, 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 the pile of supposed letters and it was just almost unusable. I mean, most most letters were kind of incredibly badly spelt and uh, um, not making any point whatsoever, just sort of saying, oh, I saw a gig by so-and-so, a band, they were fantastic, or, you know, one-line sort of responses to what they'd read. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a shame, really, that that art was lost. Yeah, well, I remember sort of looking back at when they would do kind of uh, collector's editions of Enemy and things. They would often highlight the letters, the very sort of um, the very detailed, long form letters that, that that were sent in by people that then went on to become very famous musicians. You know, you have the likes of Morrissey and Pete Doherty and people writing those letters. So yeah, it's kind of it feels like that's a that was a a, a tradition that that was lost quite early on. Yeah, we had a few of those. That was quite fun. We also had people write in who, you know, part, part of the fun of, of um, editing a letter of was always, you know, you get into a bit of a, an argument with the writer and you always had the last word because, you know, it wasn't like a back and forth um, in conversation on the internet you can have now. But it's, uh, you know, part of the sport of it was to kind of uh, have a bit of a pop at the people writing in trying to say that your review was wrong. Um, but some of them were really, really good letters, and some people got taken on as writers for the enemy because they wrote in great letters to the letters page. And Stephen Dalton is one memorable um, example. So, you know, there was uh, there was some good stuff in there along with the uh, the, the vitriolic trash. Um, I was just saying. So, one of your best known interviews is the 2007 conversation with Keith Richards, where he he said that he snorted his dad's ashes. I wondered, um, has the shifting sands of, of access to celebrity, social media, and so on made explosive tidbits like that rarer? Does it is it the case that they tend to only come from people who are sort of pre-internet and have been doing this long enough to to say whatever they want? Um, yeah, I think I think it probably has. Yeah. <coughs> um, if you go back and read um, interviews with with fans from the sort of 80s and 90s and, and earlier than that, <coughs> it's remarkable how open they are and how articulate they are and and, um, and, and honest, really. Um, I think as time went on, um, we had that situation around about the 90s where uh, alternative rock bands who used to say anything they liked in the, in the press and, and could just sort of get away with it and, and would make fascinating interviews. Because 
alternative music became commercially successful in the 90s and suddenly there was a lot of money behind it all the major labels sort of came in and bought up all the minor labels and all, you know bands were getting signed to these um, huge labels um it, it suddenly became a bit more important to control uh, that sort of image and not get into trouble and you know manage to stay on the radio and stay on the tv and not swear so much and this sort of thing so you did find over the, after that period that acts wouldn't be quite as open as um as, as someone like Keith Richards would be. Um, Keith Richards, being an old hand of these things, was quite happy to sort of just sort of tell you, you know, there's so many legends about Keith Richards, his career is hardly going to be um, damaged by him saying anything, you know, about him taking drugs sort of however many years ago. There's a lot of bands coming through where their labels might be going, well, maybe you shouldn't be saying about saying that sort of thing, you know, impressionable young fans, all sorts of reasons why they, they don't really want that sort of thing coming out. So it's kind of, it is frustrating. Um, but the, the thing is, those, all those old guard, they're still there at the minute, and they're still sort of talking about those things. It's, to, a lot of them have kind of given up all of their uh, hell-raising days many years ago, so you get the same stories coming out every time you interview someone like, um, I don't know, Ozzy Osbourne. Um, but, um, it, but, but then you sort of find it's quite refre refreshing when a band comes along that, that is quite open about talking about these things. You look back to the Libertines, for instance. Um, you look at um, uh, Albert Hammond Jr. sort of talking about his, his sort of uh, drug issues. There are still people out there that are willing to willing to do it, um, and also you've got to think that it's, it's generally a few years after they've stopped taking loads of drugs and going crazy that that's when people are quite more willing to talk about those things rather than yeah, when they're in the middle of it. They've got the distance then and, they the, might get and the clarity to yeah, and also that they can kind of recount those stories wholesale in that perhaps you know they they don't have to worry so much about the people who who are involved's opinions and so on. Um, I wonder as well if it's to do with um, if it's to do with uh, budgets, record label budgets, because back in the day there was a lot more money swilling around, and so yeah, you may have invested, uh, you know, millions of pounds in a band, but you also had millions to spare. Whereas now the investment may be similar, but that people are operating in in a leaner way, and so they have to be a bit more careful about upsetting potential record buyers and things like that. Um, that's certainly uh, an issue with people. I think also um, the access element is um, uh, another thing. Um, if you look back to sort of the 70s and 80s, I mean, a, a journalist would get in a, in a van with a band and be with them for a week um, because there are only a few music magazines that um, would cover bands like that. <clears throat> as, things, as time goes on, uh, there's far more places and far more publications who want interview time, and there's, now there's blogs want interview time, and so now you know you get half an hour, 45 minutes in a hotel room as the 15th person to interview an act that day. Um, so, you know, people are just regurgitating the same sort of stories and they're not, you know, you're not forming a relationship with someone and forming a bond of trust and then finding, you know, getting deeper into what's, what that's, what's actually happening in their lives. Um, again, there are still a few bands that do that. I mean, you know, I, once again, I, I quote the Libertines. I mean, I spent a week in, the, in a van with the Libertines um, and that was very revealing and they were very open about things. So, you know, it's, it's rare and it's exciting when, when you get an insight into a band like that. But generally, um, it's more of a conveyor belt now at, at every level. Um, it's, you know, you get your allotted 20 minutes on the phone or you get your allotted half an hour in a hotel somewhere. And you can only get what you can get out of that. Mm. And, and I suppose those environments, the ho you know, the hotel room, the label boardroom, etc., they're fairly they're, they're fairly sterile. There's not much stimulus there. There's nothing to kind of spark a conversation necessarily either. And it's pretty difficult to try and convince 
uh, some tour manager to let you take Paul McCartney to the pub for 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it's not going to happen. No, I can see how that's a situation that could spiral out of control. Um, as well as reviewing, you've, you've written a number of books, each tackling a different artist in depth, Muse, Jay-Z, Bon Iver, etc. Um, is it necessary to be a fan of the artist you're covering when it comes to books, when you're writing in that level of detail, and, and knowing that it's mainly going to be fans who are perhaps resistant to critical analysis that buy them? I think it certainly helps to be a fan. Um, I wouldn't say that of all the books I've written, I've gone in as like, this is, a, this is an artist I love deeply, and, I, and I, it's very important to me to write the, the definitive biography of them. But when you get a commission to do something like that, you've got to do absolutely everything you can. And, I, and the research that I put into um, some of those books, especially the ones that I didn't necessarily know a lot about the artist, um, I mean, you know, it, it's destroys a year of your life. You, know, you literally do nothing else for a year. Um, you know, I've literally read everything. All those, all those artists that I've written a book about, I've literally read everything that's been written about them. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you come out sort of, some of them, some of them can be quite draining because um, you look at someone like Kanye West, and that's, you know, that's great. You sort of, you, you, you plot it out, you read everything, um, you get to your word length, and you're around about 2010 in the story, and then he. Then he starts going out with um, Kim Kardashian, and there's a million things online on the Daily Mail website, um, with just pictures of side boob, basically. And you've got to read every single one of those ridiculous stories where they're going out and you know they're holding hands as a story, if they're not holding hands as a story, and it's just ludicrous how much there is. So you get to the you know suddenly the book stretches <laughs> an extra physical and that, that could be quite draining. The ones I've, I've enjoyed doing most. Um, have been the ones that, that I was particularly a fan of, and partly because it's it's great to rediscover things, you know, to really dig deep on a band like Muse or The Killers, um, but also because you have a relationship with those acts, so there were pe- people are much more likely to talk to you. Um, you know, I got time with with The Killers and, and, and their team, and that was fantastic. And um, so I think you get a, a better book out of that if you are a fan when you're going in. But I certainly think, I certainly hope. Um, that on acts that I didn't know everything about, such as Jay-Z and Bonnie Ver, um, you know, you, you, those books came out and people came back and said, oh, you got this bit wrong, you got that bit wrong. And I was thinking, that's fantastic. There's only people picked up like two or three bits I've got wrong about Jay's entire career. Yeah. That's a thing. Yeah. That's a good <laughs> hit rate. Got wrong. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I got, to, I got to, towards the end of that book um, and I only then realised that when he was saying cheese, he meant money. <laughs> I was thinking this guy just wants a house for the cheese. I mean, he's just cheese mad. <laughs> uh, I did have to go back and sort of rewrite some of the cheese bits. But, uh, so, you know, it's a bit like that. Um, what, uh, what record that you reviewed did you have to jump through the most hoops, go to the most effort to hear, and was it worth it in the end? Um, well, I mean, I guess this would be a time to bring up my, my notorious Kid A review, um, which... Uh, was a, a weird one because it was the, one of the first ones where the, the record company really tried to restrict journalists hearing it. Before that point, pretty much every record, we would just send it on a CD, like weeks up front, and we'd play it in the office, and it was all fine. That was the first one. I think there were a couple of sort of major pop artists that might have done this before, but I, you know, this was the, certainly the first one that I was reviewing, where they were very wary of pirating and people you know, putting stuff online. So they, they, they tried to come up with all these different sort of methods of getting it to journalists where the journalists then wouldn't be able to play it to anybody else. And there was 
thought that it was going to be arriving on a some sort of magic stick that you could sort of plug a thing in and you can just do it that way. Um, that never materialised, you know, the technology wasn't there yet. So in the end, I had to re review that record. What they did was they got a bunch of journalists in a room in Camden uh, with sort of throw cushions in it. And they, uh, they put big speakers up everywhere, but they didn't use the speakers. They gave us all headphones to listen to the record on. Um, and they played the record once. And uh, people were falling asleep, you know, people, people over in this, this corner were playing Hangman. Um, people weren't particularly paying that much attention. It was all a bit of a joke. Um, but, you know, my editor wanted a review up front, so, so that was kind of how I had to listen to it. I then got to listen to it a few more times in the, in the record company office, but at the time it seemed so ludicrous that this was uh, the new practice. And I think as time's gone on, artists have realised that that's not really the best way to get music to critics. You know, we, some, some records you need to live with for a bit. Mm. Uh, and so... Particularly a record like Kid A, I would have thought. Exactly, exactly. You know, I, I, get an awful, I got an awful lot of um, uh, grief for my uh, for not giving it a bad review. Um, and part, I mean, I could argue partly that's because I didn't get the chance to live with it. Um, also, partly I've gone back to it since and it's you know, really not a very good record in my opinion. So, uh, I think people now, record labels have realised that maybe, you know, journalists do need a little bit of leeway. But the way that artists are now getting around that is just by dropping records unexpectedly. And Radiohead, again, is very much like this. There are, there, are, there are a lot of bands, a lot of big pop artists, don't need reviews because they've got a, a, a ready-made fan base that are just going to buy their records however bad it is. Mm. And so they just release it unexpectedly, there you go, it sells however many millions of people stream it uh, beyond recognition, and then it's um, then the reviews come out sort of 12 hours later, and are generally not particularly uh, complimentary because the reason, the reason they've dropped it like that is because it's not very good. Mm. Well, it's, it kind of mirrors the, the film world, I guess, in that that was always a surefire sign that a film was going to be terrible, was that there, there, it wasn't, that there were no press screenings and that it just was coming out. They, it used to mainly happen with horror, I think, because they knew that you know horror was not going to be particularly well-reviewed anyway, let alone if it was you know something that was a basic derivative horror. And so it feels like, to some extent, that's happened to music a little bit as well. Yeah. And also in that situation, you find that the reviews that come out, they're snap opinions, you know, in, in that very same way. I mean, you know, I, I got to listen to Kid A three times before I reviewed it. These days, if, uh, I don't know, Beyonce drops an album at midnight unexpectedly, the reviewer for The Guardian will, will have literally have to be a, a, a review in, in, on, the, on the website a, a couple of hours later. I mean, you know, you have to, you have to sort of literally throw ideas off and, and opinions off the top of your head in those sort of situations. And you don't have the time to, to really get inside the record. Yeah, I, wor I worry that it will, it will end up with a situation where you almost have reviews written before the record's been listened to in the same way as you have people prepping obituaries for people who haven't died yet, you know? And that, and that you know, pe pe people will guess the five or six things that you're going to, that, that are likely to be applicable to a Beyonce record or, a, you know, uh, something like that. And then it will just be a case of listening to the record through long enough to edit the ones that aren't true. And then the and and then put out the rest as as a review. We're talking about a very immoral world that I couldn't possibly. Uh, <laughs> couldn't possibly. Um, <laughs> all right, let's move, let's move to more positive ground then. Um, to, be, to be honest, though, I couldn't imagine that that happening. I don't think there's a reviewer out there that, that would write a review of a record they haven't heard and then. I hope then not. I hope not. Later on.
Um, if you could choose one artist's show to be the last thing you ever reviewed, who would it be? Ooh. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be someone that you'd absolutely love to see live. It's, I guess it's more about who, you know, who would you like to write about last? Um, God, that's a tricky one. Um, I mean, my favorite, the, the best gigs I've ever seen in my life have generally been Dixie's gigs. I mean, if, if I was going to list um, the top ten live shows I've ever seen, the Pixies would probably be to the top four or five. Um, but I don't, I've written enough about the Pixies that I probably wouldn't want that to be the last thing I've ever done. I'd probably want to go for something that I haven't written that much about and that would be quite exciting to write about. Um, so maybe um, it'd have to be something, something properly colourful like the Flaming Lips. Um, but a Flaming Lips show that was the, the Flaming Lips show to where end all Flaming Lips shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, the greatest hits of Flaming Lips live where they just did did everything that they've uh, they've ever done on stage would be pretty great. Nice. Or something classic. Um, uh, I don't know. Unfortunately, we can't get the Beatles back together again. It's only reform. Maybe the reform Smiths, but even that even that's a bit dodgy to say now. Well, I mean, it would certainly be worth writing about, you know, musically and as a spectacle. And, yeah. and I guess the the, the the sort of the logistics of of how and whether it would it it, it would go ahead. Maybe um, uh, the uh, the Beatles reunion as um, uh, as holograms. That might be quite a good one. Okay, nice. Um, so I mean, that's that's the end of the bulk of my questions. But one thing I do at the end of every episode is I've got five phrases. Some of these are from your writing. Some of them aren't. Uh, so I'm going to go through them one by one, and I'm curious to see if you can tell which is which. I could usually pick mine out actually. But we'll give it a go. Okay, let's see how we go. Okay, number one. Never mind, I've forgotten every single thing I've ever written. And I have dug fairly deep into the past as well, because it would be too easy if I just picked stuff you'd written last week. So here we go. Number one, his role as the jaunty urban rap poet of London low-lifery has been handed down to Rap Boy and the cathartic weight of his album hangs heavy. Is that you or is that not you? That's me. That is you. That's uh, Jamie T at Glastonbury a few years ago. Uh, Number two... Most of the rest of this album backtracks hard, however, to the sort of house-trained, string-laden guff that gets you John Lewis ads. I don't think that's me. That isn't you. That's uh, It is a Tom O'Dell review, though, but it's Kitty Empires. Um, number three. Their, track, their, their tracks come loaded up with burbling synth arpeggios and other futuristic effects intended to announce the band's modernity, but the music is firmly old-school at heart, proggy hard rock that foregoes any pretensions to restraint. Um, I, I probably would have tried to get more of a gag in there, so I think that's probably not me. That's right, it's not you. Uh, it's uh, Sam Ubi from Pitchfork on uh, Muses, Black Holes and Revelations. Uh, number four, he's at his best when his AOR by numbers band leaves him solo, pouring enough impassioned howls into the raw painted scars to almost silence the crowd chatter. Yeah, I knew, I knew that from, from the first three sentences. Three, three yeah, that's me. I can't remember what it was, though. That is you, that's you on uh, James Bay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the last one. Black Francis has distilled death, horror, whores, biblical imagery and undersea myths into a succession of short, sharp chunks of immense catchiness. The unearthly howls of debaser and dead, the calm, dead-eyed destroyer of wave of mutilation, the warped, sudden soul of hay, the controlled abandon and angles that Joey Santiago coaxed from his guitar throughout. Well, that's overwritten enough to be me, um, but I'm not sure it is. I've also written an awful lot about the Pixies. I I can't remember that line. Um, I'm going to... I'm 50-50 on that, but I'm going to go not me. 
you're right. It's not you. Uh, it was picked deliberately because obviously it's Pixie's writing, so it could well have been you. But that was uh, Ian Wade's BBC Music Review of Doolittle. So uh, you're, you're five out of five. Wow, I can recognise myself. That's quite good. Congratulations. Um, if uh, if anyone listening wants to catch up with you, stay up to date with with you, find your writing, where's the best way or method of doing that? Um, you can find me on Twitter. Um, if you want to sort of follow my writing, you, uh, there's a, uh, a profile page on The Guardian. I think there's a profile page on The Telegraph. Um, you can find me um, blogging an awful lot on Enemy. Um, or buy my books. Um, I've read a novel. By the novel. Yes, I saw this. The, yeah, there's a novel on on Amazon and etc. Um, every every Friday, once an episode goes up, uh, we post further reading links on Twitter. So if you go to twitter.com/slash/reads-like-a-four, you'll be able to find links to uh, some of uh, some of the writing and obviously links to to get the books as well. Great. Super. All right, that's everything. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, man. So there we are. My sincere thanks to Mark Beaumont, enemy uh, stalwart and uh, reviewer for pretty much every publication you or your dad has ever read. Um, you can join us on Twitter or on Instagram. It's at ReadsLikeA4. Get in touch, ReadsLikeA4 at gmail.com. And we will be back next Friday with another chat with a brand new critic. Until then, thanks so much for listening. Bye. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.